Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 26 and going through the end of the chapter. As I pray and the Lord gives me uh, fresh vision, uh, I may change things at times to see where the Spirit is, is leading me, and I just uh, believe strongly in my spirit that I want to start doing one proverb, just one verse, before every Sunday, just to give you, there's a lot of pithy wisdom statements in the Proverbs, and sometimes to go through them all together, it's a little hard to break it down, but, so what I'd like to do is each Sunday just go through one proverb. Uh, today we're going to be in Proverbs 27, uh, verse 7, and it's very short. It says, a satisfied soul loathes, he despises the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Well, what does that mean? Okay, let's talk about physically. In those days, if you had a craving for something sweet, you didn't have Splenda or NutraSweet or anything like that. If you really had a hankering for something sweet, you go for the, the honeycomb. But the Bible is telling us that the satisfied soul, somebody who's filled, they have satiety value. They can't fit one more thing in. They're not interested in the honeycomb. But to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. To somebody who's famished and starving, and very few people in our country of plenty understand real hunger. But somebody who's really hunger, even if it's bitter, going down, if it's going to nourish them and, and give them some filling sensation, they're going to want that. That's going to be sweet to them. Now, I liken this to the Word of God because a satisfied soul. There are people in churches all over the world who come into church and they're filled with the world. They're filled with stuff. Their garages and closets and attic spaces have a whole bunch of stuff to make them happy. And they come into church and the sweet thing of the Word of God, I'm full. I'm just doing the do for 40 minutes. I'm giving God his time because I didn't pay attention to him for the rest of the week. So that satisfied soul, even that sweet thing of the Word of God, they're not interested in. But to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. What you have there is, when you're hungry, when you have looked at the things of the world, and I remember my wife and I, before we were married, the first time we stepped into church, the church didn't fill us. We had a hunger, and that fast-paced lifestyle wasn't filling us. And we came into church, and even when the pastor talked about sin and repentance, even that bitter thing seemed sweet to us because it was God's word. And we looked at each other and said, we've got to come back next Sunday. So we just couldn't wait to get the word of God. So I ask you this morning, are you filled so that the sweet things of the word of God is just, it's just kind of trite or common to you? Or are you hungry for the word of God that you just can't wait to get into the word and understand the deeper things, the spiritual things of the Lord? Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you and we pray that you give us that hunger and excitement that we would be filled with every little tidbit that comes off the pages of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the last time we went through the meat of the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. And we ended with a demonstration on the body of Christ doing uh, with body armor. If you were here last week, I used a vest and I showed you an illustration. Today we're going to finish up with chapter 20 with the Apostle Paul's discourse to the Ephesian elders, which is a good instruction for leaders. Anybody who believes that your calling is leadership or you are a leader, all of chapter 20 is pertinent because the Apostle Paul knows he's going to his death soon. So he wants to make sure that those he's discipled, those he's brought up in the Lord, those who are leaders over the church, understand, importantly, what it means to be a leader. And he hits them hard with this, with a lot of love, though. 
Verse 26. Two verses. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned or avoided to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So we covered verses 1 through 25, and now we're starting in verse 6. We saw the Apostle Paul's example to these people, and we saw what, his, what the Spirit showed him about his future. Today here, we're going to see Paul's obedience. Paul's hands are clean. There was a story about a bunch of servicemen in the time of conflict, and they got a new chaplain came into their unit. And they were speaking with their chaplain, and he was going to be their spiritual mentor, so they wanted to know some things from him. And they asked him, do you believe, chaplain, in a literal hell for the unrepentant and those who reject God's way of salvation? And he said, nah, maybe it's an allegory or something like that. But their response to the chaplain was, well, if there is a literal hell, then you're deceiving us. And if there's not a literal hell, then we don't need you. But either way, we're better off without you. What we see with Paul, the Apostle Paul, is he is a watchman. He's a shepherd, okay? Uh, And this comes from Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel chapter 33 that I won't get into in detail. But suffice it to say that in those days of walled cities, you would have a tower. If the city uh, elders were smart, they'd build, erect a, a large tower. And the watchman would go up into that tower and he'd look over the horizon. And if he saw a band of marauders or dangers or something like that, he would alert the city elders and say, there's danger coming and the people would prepare for war or, or any type of danger. Now, God in, in Ezekiel likens uh, the prophets, the pastors, the shepherd to that watchman. And he says to Ezekiel, if I tell you to tell the people that there's danger coming, whether it be in the form of their sin that's killing them or judgment because I'm not happy with them, or any of those things, and you fail, or you do warn the people, and they perish, the blood is on their own hands. But you as a watchman, as a prophet, as a pastor, as a leader, if I tell you to make sure the people know that judgment is coming, or bad things are coming their way, and you fail to tell them, and they perish, their blood is on your hands. Okay, so you see, you kind of see that Uh, The Apostle Paul, being a Pharisee, knowing the Jewish law, had very um, good working knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And verse 56 in Isaiah, and I'll just read it. There's only uh, three verses that I want to cover. This is heading under the Messiah's rebuke of the wicked. These are the bad shepherds. Verse 10, it says, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Why do you get a dog? Mostly to bark. And to warn you of danger. Okay, that's what dogs are supposed to do. But in this case, he's making an analogy. They don't, they don't even bark. They don't even warn the people of danger. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as of today and much more abundant. So you see the attitude of these false shepherds. And you know, the Bible is timeless because today there are many false shepherds in the pulpit who have blood on their hands. Because they're not warning of judgment. They're not warning of sin. They're not giving a balanced message, but not Paul. Paul said, I have not shunned or avoided to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Why does the Apostle Paul say this? Because the indication, or it's indicating, that the tendency is to sugarcoat. 
or else he wouldn't have said this. See, we need a balanced message. If I tell you Jesus is a great Savior, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Why is he such a friend? Well, he's our Savior. Well, what's he saved us from? Well, hell. Well, why would I go to hell? I'm a good person. Well, because we all have sin and we've all rebelled against God. That's what God's Word tells us. When we understand the depravity of our sin, and again, if you're left alone with your thoughts for an hour, you'll think of something bad, or you'll think of hurting someone or somebody who didn't treat you right, and your own thoughts will betray you, Jesus said when he walked the earth. That we have sin. Now, when you understand the depths of our sin, my sin, your sin, then the Savior looks that much better. Because how do you know something that's really good unless it's delivered you from something really bad? That's the balanced message. And as leaders, are we being obedient with what the Lord has called us to do? I often say a partial counsel of God is worse than no counsel of God because it's deceptive. It's only half the message. Let me give you an example of a balanced message. And, you know, the best person to use in the scripture is Jesus Christ himself. When we cover the book of Revelation, we'll see that Jesus spoke personally to the seven churches, to the prominent churches in the, uh, the uh, Asia Minor province. And I'll just give you a, a composite or a compilation of what Jesus said to all the churches. Jesus told them good things first. He told to them, I know your love, your patience, your good works. Jesus said, I know you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate the the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But this I have against you. He said to the churches, you left your first love. You have that woman Jezebel running the church. You've you've gone so far off the mark that it's, it's pitiful. And Jesus said to the one church Laodicea, you're not even hot for me, you're not cold for me, but you're lukewarm. And because of that, I'm just going to vomit you out of my mouth. I'm just disgusted with your behavior. And that's a balanced message. Now, for some of you who've never heard that before, you might say, wow, Jesus said that? Absolutely he did, because he loved us enough to give us the full counsel of God. And Paul is emulating that. Verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It didn't come cheap. For I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In this section, Paul's instruction is to all under-shepherds, All leadership, we see a few words in the Greek, presbyteros, the elders, those who have been in the faith for some time and have wisdom under their belts. We see the episkopos, the overseers or the bishops, okay, the ones that are head over probably a regional area. And we also see the poimenos, the shepherds, the pastors, those individual heads over the individual churches. So this is for all leadership. And there's another translation, or I like to use, when I go into the original Greek, we see it come up a little bit more. You see a little bit more depth to it. He's saying, keep watch, be shepherds. Paul is using imperatives. These are commands, they're not suggestions. I saw a phrase once where it said, these are the Ten Commandments, not Ten Suggestions. Unfortunately, in our society, we treat them like suggestions. They're the Ten Commandments. Paul is telling these people, be watch, be on your guard. Because Jesus redeemed the church with his blood. At the very least, we as under-shepherds should care for the the, the, the flock spiritually. We have to stand guard. 
And verse 29, because Paul says this, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among the heathens. They will batter the walls of the church like the orcs from the Lord of the Rings movie. Anybody paying attention? (laughs) Of course not. The Apostle Paul says the assault will come in from the inside. The assault will come in from the inside. In 1 John 2.19, the disciple John says that those, some from the, the Antichrist, they will come in, or they, will, from, they came out from us, but they were not of us. There's a huge difference there. They came from the church. They came from the body, but they were not of us. They were not of the same heart and the same mind. They didn't have pure motives. They won't spare the flock. They won't spare you financially. They will come in and they'll have a business or something to peddle and they'll try to see how many suckers they can get and rip off with their business. They won't spare you spiritually. They will come in and maybe befriend you and come alongside of you and they will bring you down to their carnal level spiritually. They won't spare you. They will exploit you for personal gain. They're opportunists. And these are leaders. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me. It says that they will come up and even if they bring one person with them, they're a leader. Now, it doesn't mean they're a good leader. We see all the dictators of the world, even in our century, right, or the last century. And they're leaders because they draw people towards them. Hitler swayed a good portion of Europe. He was a bad, evil man, but he still was a leader nonetheless because people followed him. Well, how will they do it? Self-appointed leaders uh, have to distinguish themselves from the church's message uh, in general. And again, going into the Greek, uh, a little bit more of a richer meaning, It says that they will speak things, perverse things, to draw away the disciples. In the Greek it says, basically, they will be purporting distortions to draw those away. We actually see that in the political campaign, right? Um, If you have two candidates running against each other, what they try to do is find something and make, make it bigger and distort it so that they could look better and their opponent could look bad. It's a differentiation. It's a distinguishment. How do they do it? I have something to offer you that you're not getting right now. The Gnostics did that. We have some esoteric knowledge that the church in general doesn't have. If you come study with us, we'll teach you the deeper, more spiritual things that you're not getting fed with. It's often a perversion in the word, in teaching, or in action. A loosening of the scriptural commands. Well, we know what the Apostle Paul says. Well, we know what the church says about that sin. It's kind of offensive in our society. So we loosen up that regulation a little bit. Come with us and learn from us. Bad behavior leads to bad doctrine. And bad doctrine leads to bad behavior. Now, here's an extreme, but if you look at that, um, the FLDS camp that was raided in Texas, they were an offshoot of Mormonism. Now, Mormonism claims to be uh, Christian. Oh, we love Jesus too. Jesus is our Savior too. Bad doctrine leads to bad behavior. They're finding out that a lot of those kids had broken bones. They were beat. Uh, the, one man would have four or five wives and 50 children. Uh, there was sexual abuse among the young girls. It, it's an awful scene. But bad doctrine will always lead to bad behavior. Keep that in mind. Could be some type of enticement to draw those away. Maybe an uh, appeal to the carnal side, the flesh some type of perceived comfort or uh, emotional need. Think about it. Satan disguises himself, the Bible says, as an angel of light. If Satan came in all his ugliness, nobody would probably follow him or they'd be too afraid to. But Satan disguises himself as beautiful, as beauty, as an angel of light to entice you and to draw you away. He'll use, there's that expression, you can get more with sugar than you can with salt. He uses a lot of sugar in his, in his, uh, in his fishing uh, expedition, Luros there. 
So I want to just go over with you the scriptural example of a good leader versus a bad leader. Now, this is a reiteration, basically, of Acts chapter 8, which we saw with the Apostle Peter and Simon the Sorcerer. We saw the difference between, because Simon the Sorcerer had a ministry, and the Apostle Peter had a ministry. And you saw that they clashed in Acts chapter 8. And we can see the difference between the leadership of Peter and the leadership of Simon the Sorcerer. It's very interesting. Number one, a good leader will submit to their God-appointed leaders. Everyone is submissive to someone. And I always back this up with scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. Last Sunday when I uh, came home, uh, I just felt led to call my pastor who led me to the Lord. And even if he doesn't call me, I make sure that every few weeks I give him a call to say, hey, how's it going? This is what's going on in the church. I submit myself voluntarily to my pastor. Now, we as a church are autonomous, but I still see him as somebody who led me to the Lord and somebody I can go to because he's been in ministry a lot longer than I have. A bad leader is self-willed. Their attitude is nobody will tell me what to do. Second thing in a good leader is they won't make a public spectacle. They won't draw attention to themselves. We even see that when the Apostle Peter in Galatians chapter 2 played the hypocrite, okay, eating with the Jewish people, eating with the Gentiles, and then separating himself and causing some division there, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2, I took Peter aside and I opposed him to his face. Hey, Peter, come over here. We've got to talk. He didn't make a public spectacle. He didn't want to frighten everybody else and, and make it look like there was dissension in the ranks. But he took him aside and he spoke to him one-on-one. A bad leader will just let their emotions flow because they have a lack of self-control. The third thing about a good leader is they will lift the arms of their overseers. And that's become a, a Christian cliche. If you've been in ministry, you hear the expression, you have to lift my arms. Are you lifting my arms? I want to lift your arms. You'll say, what is that? Well, what that's known as, that comes from Exodus 17. We see a situation where the children of Israel were fighting the Amalekites and Moses He took the rod of the Lord, and as long as his arm was up holding the rod of the Lord, Joshua fighting against the the Amalekites, the battle went well for the children of Israel. But as his arms got tired, he he, he started to lower his arms. Aaron, his brother, and Hur came up, and they both supported his arms and lifted his arms so that he could continue keeping the rod of the Lord up so that Joshua could win against the Amalekites. And that's what the term means. Really good leaders will lift the arms of their leadership. A bad leader has self-directed ways and has more of an effect of dragging the arms down. The fourth quality of a good leader is he does what's good for the goal, for the team, so to speak. And we saw that in the vest example. We work together as the body of Christ to achieve a common goal. Remember, most of you were here for that. I had a a, a body armor that police wear, and it was a really old vest. And I showed you that some of it was fraying. And the fibers by themselves were very weak, and they couldn't stop anything. But woven together, tight and overlaid, I actually showed you a dem- I didn't do it here for those of you who weren't here, but I did a demonstration of firing a 40-round point-blank into the armor, and I was, I was able to show you that I could peel the bullet out of that vest because the vest was so tight because all those fibers were working together. And that's a picture of the body of Christ, or my analogy anyway. Okay, a bad leader looks for a following. Most people haven't read this because it's so kind of tucked away towards the end of the Bible. But in 3 John, there's only one chapter, verses 9 through 11, we see a man named Diotrephes. And Diotrephes was a bad fiber. 
He was a person that tried to gain all the attention to himself and he pulled away from the rest of what the body of Christ was trying to achieve. He was a leader, albeit he was a bad leader. Now, something else in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which I'm not going to turn to, but I've referenced it before. The Apostle Paul, see, 1 Corinthians 1 is actually one into a great uh, books regarding the church because in 1 Corinthians, Paul corrects a lot of bad behavior in one particular church. And then in 2 Corinthians, he sees that they've changed and he's very appreciative and he's happy about their repentance. But in 1 Corinthians, right in the first chapter, and we see the chapter is filled with, or the book is filled with problems with adultery, problems with, um, with the Lord's Supper, problems with, the, the church was rife with problems. But right in the first chapter, the Apostle Paul had a problem with division. And what he said was, <clears throat> he, some were saying, I'm of Paul. Okay, some of the Corinthians would say, I can only receive from Paul. I'm going to go follow Paul. And some were saying, I'm of Cephas or Peter. And they would, all, they would have a faction that was towards Peter. And some would say, I'm of Apollos. And we talked about Apollos. Okay? And they would follow Apollos. And there was a lot of divisions in the church. But see, the Apostle Paul, Apollos, and Peter were good leaders. They try to correct that and say, listen, it's not about following us individually. I don't want you guys to say, I'm of Pastor Joe. Or I'm of Pastor Anthony. It's I'm of Jesus Christ and we all work together. You see, that's the message. You've got to look out for division. But a bad leader wants a following unto themselves. They want to pull people and draw them unto themselves. They're my people. Okay, so what you have here is that um, you know, every church needs good leaders and so do we. So what our, our procedure is, and, and it's good every once in a while to explain to you what we do here, is if you have a calling on your life, you know, God has called me to be a leader or a teacher or anything like that. What we ask you to do, and sometimes it's frustrating, well, why are they taking so long? Because what we want you to do is we, you come in, you observe, you receive the word of God, you make friends, you get involved, and then, you know what? If God has called you to be a leader, you'll be a leader. Okay, so continuing there... Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul repeats this whole thing about leadership and what they're supposed to do. Verse 31, he says, therefore, watch. We see commands again. You have to watch. And remember that for three years, I didn't cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So as a leader, you have to be vigilant. Now, I'm going to use the word pastor, minister, shepherd interchangeably because they all mean basically the same thing. A lazy shepherd or a non-caring shepherd is not vigilant. And when the wolf comes, he's either asleep or he runs away. He doesn't care. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Any who came before me or any who will come after me are false shepherds. Okay? When the wolf comes, you know, he, Jesus protected the sheep. The hireling or the false shepherd, he scatters when he sees danger coming. Some people leave good Bible-believing churches and get involved with cults. And sometimes I scratch my head and say, how does that happen? What is it that's drawing those away from solid teaching and bringing them into these, these issues where they become... I read testimonies and things like that, and I can't understand it. But understand, too, that part of that is the shame of the hearer. We know that when the Apostle Paul instructed his protege, Timothy, in the book of Timothy, he said to him, some will, will, will give rise to fables and, and not good doctrine, and they'll have itching ears. And they're kind of going to go with what their itching ears want to hear. And now it doesn't mean that their ears are literally itching. But what it means is that those will say, you know what, I want, I, I want to just live a carnal life. I don't want God to tell me what to do. I don't want to change for Christ. So maybe what they'll do is they'll follow the antinomianists, 
where there's a perversion of grace, where it doesn't matter what you do, all God shows grace. So it's a license to live a, a debauched lifestyle. And then in the end, you're no different than your unsaved neighbor. There's no difference. There's no light in your life. Or even with the, some of the, the Mormon splinter groups, you know, I mean, I get, some guys think that they should have more than one wife and all these you know, weird, weird ideas. So their itching ears are going to bring them to these cults that they get involved with these compounds, and they're the king of their neighborhood. You know, they got all these, you know, 50 kids and four or five wives. You know, I, I don't get that whole thing. But the itching ears will draw people away to a, a bizarre doctrine. Okay, understand that. And in Proverbs 27:7, which is what I read right in the beginning, that's the question: Do people come and hear the word of God because they're hungry for the word of God, or they just come because they're doing the do? It's the thing to do on Sunday. I'm going to see my friends. You know, only we in our own hearts know that. Are we hungry for the Word of God, or are we filled with everything and we're just not interested? First Peter 5:8. Peter also says, "Be sober, be vigilant." Is that word? Be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is always looking for a few good victims, and he does. We saw in the book of Job. Uh, when God called the angels to account, uh, we know that Satan was walking to and fro on the face of the earth. Well, what's he doing? He's just looking for trouble. You know, he's not looking to do good things. So he's looking to see who he can devour. And the Apostle Paul says his warnings were with tears. Probably his message wasn't received well. You know, some might have felt that Paul, and there's a psychological term today called hypervigilant. You know, you apply that term to somebody who's always, you know, vigilant. So maybe some looked at Paul and felt, you know what, relax, Paul. It's not that bad. You know, don't be so critical. But I could see why would he do it with tears? Why did he warn them with tears? Because if somebody was popular that had to be dealt with, maybe it wasn't received well. Maybe it went right over their heads. Maybe Paul was trying to say, boy, Grandma's grown, sprouted some big teeth. You know, Grandma's sprouted a very big nose. Boy, Grandma has sprouted some big hairy feet. Hey, maybe it's not Grandma. He was able to see that there was wolf, wolves under sheep's clothing. And in verse 32, moving on, he says, "And now, brethren, I command you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me." I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, as He said, "It is more blessed to give than to receive." Okay, so these are Paul's final blessings and farewells. In verse 32, he says, "Now I commend you to God. Fly on your own, in a sense. When I was and." and Those of you who are regular part of our body understand what's going on with our missionary in Guatemala. The government has, has somewhat changed and has become hostile to Christians, and uh, they're trying to accuse him of things and uh, really trying to get him to stop preaching the gospel. And I'm give, I give you updates every so often. But you know, we were talking, and, and I said, "Listen, I didn't give. You're asking me for my advice. I really need to give it to more prayer." But is it possible that you've been there for five years and you've discipled so many people, you've done so many good for the, those in Guatemala? Is it possible that the Lord is moving you on and allowing them to sort of fly on their own, sort of like Paul's discourse to the Ephesian elders? Maybe he's uh, calling you to set the leadership there to go and continue 
and to minister to their own people, and God is going to bring you somewhere else. And again, without prayer, because I want to pray about things, it, it was a good uh, idea or a good uh, possible uh, advice to him. He says, I commend you to God and the word. There's two things here. I commend you to God. What Paul is saying is that we, we know that we want to have uh, control over our lives in a sense. We want to be able to protect our children. We want to be able to provide for our families. But in oftentimes as Christians, or most of the times, we really should be praying about everything. I commend you to God. Paul knew that when he lost his life, he was going to be physically powerless to help the Ephesian disciples. So he was constantly giving them to God, praying for them. And he says, I commend you also to the word. So God is going to take care of you, and also the word is left for you to read, to understand, and for you to follow. And that's what you have repeatedly throughout the Bible, prayer and the word. God help leaders, any ministerial leader, who's not making prayer and the word of God a daily staple. And God help us if our congregation isn't praying for us. Okay, I need to be commended to the word of God, and I need to commend you uh, to God and the word. He says to build you up. And to give you an inheritance. To build you up is for this side of eternity. And to give you an inheritance, we know that we receive our inheritance on the other side, so to speak. So both are covered, the spiritual and the temporal. He says, among those who were sanctified. Now, that's a big word. And uh, some of you who are maybe new to the Bible may say, well, what's sanctified? Sanctification. What does that big word mean? I don't have my dictionary with me. In the Greek, the root for sanctification is also the root for saint and the word for holy. And what do I mean by that? That means that you're set apart for the service of God, positionally and kinetically. And I'll explain that. A sanctification process. When you repent of your sins and you believe Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're positionally sanctified. You're set apart from that point on. Uh, the disciple John tells us that we become uh, adopted uh, into the family of God. So you're set apart positionally and kinetically. As we continue to grow, as our walk changes, as we grow in Christ, hopefully we can look back 10 years ago and say, I'm not the same person that I was back then. Now, it's just something that, not that we look for a pat on the back, but it's something that should happen during the sanctification process. I know uh, in my other job, uh, the police officers I work with, I know a lot of the rookies. And the, the new guys know me on my squad as the pastor, as the guy who's been around for a while. And, you know, they like me. But then I also know those officers I've worked with 10, 12, 13 years ago. And sometimes they talk, because they talk, and they may share a story about something I did back then. And the new guy will come up to me and, and he'll go, that can't be you, because I'm different. Now, that's a cool thing. So I get to see firsthand that my life has changed from now and 10 years ago. And that's what we look for, that sanctification process. Not that I was that bad, but... Um, I want you to understand that. But, you know, we're all sinners, so it's all, it's all relevant. But the point is, you know, it's, they look at me and they're like, I, I don't understand. You know, this is, I've known you for a year or two, and I can't imagine that that was the case. So it's that sanctification process. Verse 33, the Apostle Paul says this, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And again, let me remind you that these are great guidelines for ministry. And this is something that we should follow. Unfortunately, ministry has changed in the last 2,000 years. And I wonder, are ministry leaders reading this book? I have coveted no one's gold or silver or apparel. Do not covet was one of the Ten Commandments. So it was very important to God. Unfortunately, today there's widespread greed in ministry. I want to ask you, um, 
you can call out if you like, uh, especially those who maybe haven't made a decision for Christ. Maybe you're checking the church out. Maybe this is your a new exposure to the Bible. What is one of the biggest turnoffs to those who don't know the Lord to come to church? What is one of the biggest turnoffs? You can call out if you like. Yeah. Awesome. Now, I didn't tell him beforehand to say that he got the right answer. But that truly is one of the biggest turnoffs. I was talking to a friend of mine who said that he goes to a church where not only they want to know what he does for a living, they want to know how much he, he makes, and they want a copy of his W-2s. <laughs> and I'm like, you still go there? What's wrong with you? I don't understand that. Um, they're constant badgering for money. But Paul, as a leader, talking to other leaders, saying, I have coveted no one's gold, silver, or apparel. Now, there's a difference between the Christian's individual responsibility and the church the church's responsibility. In the Old Testament, the whole concept of tithing, if you're not familiar with that, the tithe literally meant tenth. So what would happen was in, in God's you know, economy, uh, the, the priests were set apart solely to teach the word of God, to do the sacrifices, and to be that mediation and that bridge to get the common person to God himself. And what would happen was, since they were only supposed to be focused on ministry, God set up a system so that everyone else around who wasn't in the priesthood, they would give a portion of their crops or give a portion of their cattle, and they would tithe. They would give a 10% so that the ministers could just minister. Okay? So the mature Christian understands tithing. As a new believer, I, I read about it, I understood it, and some have the, the, the response, 10%, that's a lot. Well, I look at it this way. Knowing what God has done for me in my life, he's only asking for 10%. See, it depends on how you look at it. God gives me everything I could possibly want. What's 10%? So the Christian's responsibility is towards tithing and understanding that the local fellowship is what preaches the gospel, gives the word, and of course the church has to be sustained. So the Christian responsibility is towards tithing, but it's not for the church to badger people. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul says, well, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you're going to reap abundantly. But let everyone give, not out of compulsion, the Apostle Paul says, but out of the abundance of his heart. Okay, so it's an individual's responsibility, not a badgering responsibility for the church. Now, and again, it's not a sin to be rich. Some people have asked me that. But what I do find offensive is that ministers today, and you see it on the news, you see it on the website, and it gives Christians a bad name because these ministers are living multi-million dollar lavish lifestyles off the back of the gospel and off of their, uh, their congregation, and I find that despicable. I'm just going to say that. So if you see me driving around in a, a $200,000 car, you could remind me that I said that, but I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. Verse 34, Paul showed his example again. He said, yes, you yourselves know that these hands, his hands, have provided for my necessities and those who are with me. When the money dried up, you see this a lot. Uh, there was times when the Apostle Paul was supported. We saw the Macedonians had supported him at some point in his ministry. But then you saw that when the money dried up, Paul went back to work. So he provided uh, his hands. He was no stranger to work. Many pastors work a second job to support the ministry, albeit uh, making tents until the church can fully support them and their families. But what's good about what Paul's example is, and it's good about ministers to see that example, is it's not what a minister can get out of the congregation. It's not what he can get out of ministry. It's, if it's a calling, it's what you put into it as a minister, your love for the people, the, the desire to teach, and what you can give in, not what you can get out of the ministry.
Verse 35. And then he says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. True ministry is giving and help those who have fallen on hard times. And we have to understand that. Uh, James says in uh, chapter 1, he said that true religion is helping orphans and widows in their need and not being spotted by the world. So he said, you really want to be religious? You help those who can't help themselves. And if you look at the words um, at the end, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's in red. That's Jesus himself saying these words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But understand this. It's to support the weak, not the sinful lifestyles, not the lazy. That's not what we do as a church. As a matter of fact, our benevolence packet was modeled after another Calvary, and there's a, a statement of faith that you have to read and you have to sign. If you have a sinful lifestyle, the church isn't going to support that sinful lifestyle because hard-earned money from tithers is coming into the church, and it's to support the weak, those who can't help themselves. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Arthur Brooks, he was a Syracuse University economist, wrote a book, Who Really Cares? Anybody hear about that book, Arthur Brooks? Okay. He had a persuasion, a political persuasion, but he was set out to find who really gives money in America. He, he did all this research, he compiled all this empirical evidence, and what he found was those who gave the most money were the Bible thumpers. <laughs> you know, it was the Christians because of their mandate from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he actually found it wasn't necessarily the rich Christians. It was the low-income and middle-income Christians who were giving the most money proportionally. Now, the way I look at that is, if you remember when Jesus was with the disciples and people were putting money into the church treasury, an old woman came in and she dropped in two mites that were worth less than a penny in those days. And Jesus said, look at, look at that woman. She's given more than anybody. And they probably looked at him and went, huh? That guy just gave him it. No, no, the two mites. Because she gave out of her poverty, they all gave out of their abundance. And I, I like to listen to uh, famous people talk and see what they say, but... You, you want to compare that to somebody like Ted Turner, right? Big media mogul. Ted Turner said, I'm, I'm, he didn't say he was stingy, but you could really get that from the interview. He says, I don't give a lot of money because, you know, I have $2 billion in assets and I need that for my retirement. <laughs> now, if you need $2 billion to retire, I'm in a lot of trouble. As John Bear would say, I'm going to die in the traces. You see the horse with the harnesses, you know, dying in the field. So it just, it's pretty sad because, you know, who knows at what point that man is going to die and meet his maker. And he's got $2 billion in assets. Why not, why not help those who, who can't help themselves? Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. So he's sailing away at this point. Paul was direct. He was very direct. Paul at times was hard to keep up with. Some even dropped out of ministry with Paul. Some said bad things about Paul. But in the end, they knew that he loved them because it's, he served them selflessly. Paul's only concern was obedience to the Lord and saving souls. And it showed in his example. Now, hopefully we, you guys can get two out of two right. The first question I ask, what is the biggest turnoff, especially for non-believers to come to church? They badger you for money. Okay. What is, in another instance, what is some of the biggest impediment for non-believers to be around Christians? What's, what's the one in, person, in their personal lives? 
There you go. You guys have said it. Lifestyle, hypocrisy, uh, example. And, and that's a big thing, guys. What, what kind of example are we showing to the unbelieving world? Because sometimes the body of Christ can be a poor example to the unbelieving world. Now, that doesn't exempt those who don't know the Lord from judgment. You can't, you know, die and then go to, go to see the Lord and, and say, you know what, Lord, I didn't believe in Jesus Christ because that Christian was a hypocrite. God may agree with you. That Christian was a hypocrite. But what about you? You see, six billion people on the planet, I don't know how he does it because he's God. He's able to have a relationship with us all individually. He's able to be intimately involved with us in our lives individually. And it, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. Talk about a multitasker. God is the king of multitasking. But God is interested in all of us individually. I look out and I see a sea of faces. Each one of you here, what are you going through? What's going on in your life? Are you, are you just checking us out? You've never heard the Bible before. God loves you. He loves you so much that he put out the olive branch. That the Bible says, yet we will, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. So he put out, he took the first step in your life. He gave his son Jesus, his only son, to die on the cross and shed his blood for the remission of our sins. The second step is up, is up to us to reach out our hand and receive that and say, yes, I will take that. I repent of my sins and I want to start my life with Jesus Christ. So God did it first and God is concerned with us individually. And we can't look at other people and say, that's going to affect my relationship with, with God. No, it isn't. You could have a church filled with hypocrites and a lot of the church is. But God is concerned with you individually. So forget about everybody else and you repent of your sins. You receive Jesus Christ as your example. But on the other hand, Paul, like many other good examples of Christ, he, he showed a great example. And this is a great model for ministry. Hebrews 13:7 says, Remember your leaders who have taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and try to trust the Lord as they do. As we go through the book of Acts, my desire, and I think that this is really geared mostly towards leadership, because Paul is addressing the Ephesian leadership. This is great for those of us who are in ministry or in somewhat in a, in a leadership capacity. My desire is for those of us in leadership to learn what the uh, Word of God says about example and leadership and measure ourselves by the Word of God and always have that desire to improve where needed. Let's pray.